The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hey, very warm welcome to Scorebox with Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq jumping to fresh closing records on the back of strong earnings as the season gets into high gear. A Twitter shares surge after crushing first quarter expectations with the president, Mr. Trump, hailing a great meeting with CEO Jack Dorsey, this following an earlier attack on the tech company over political bias. The asset management units of Deutsche Bank and UBS are reportedly in serious merger talks about a deal that would create a European investment giant. The US will send a high-level delegation to Beijing next week as both sides work to hammer out an agreement to end their ongoing trade war. Uh, Huge numbers uh, hitting the wires, including out of Novartis. But let me start off elsewhere in Switzerland with Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse shares are closed uh, at 13.5 Swiss francs per share. Uh, And the question is, has the rally, which started like a lot of stocks in late December, uh, will it continue on the back of these uh, first quarter 2019 financial figures? And by and large, from what we've seen so far, and I hasten to add, this is first blush on the numbers. They look pretty positive. We've had a first quarter pre-tax profit of 1.06 billion Swiss francs, as opposed to expectations of just under 1 billion as well. The net income attributable to shareholders, 749 million Swissy, as opposed to expectations of 692. They're talking about net new assets of 9.6 billion Swiss uh, across wealth management businesses. The cost discipline uh, looks pretty impressive as well. The company's very proud of that. Tijanti will be pointing to that this morning as well. A return on tangible equity of 8%. Again, not yet at those double-digit levels of the uh, pre-crisis, but still moving in the right directions, the company says, despite significant revenue headwinds. And I've just gone a little bit deeper into the numbers as far as I can with just literally a couple of minutes gone. Uh, and I'm looking at those revenue headwinds, which look quite severe for the wealth management-related and IBCM, the investment bank unit as well, uh, coming in at... Uh, Three, uh, was it to 3.7 uh, billion uh, Swissy in the first quarter of this year, as opposed to the previous year uh, of four. Uh, 0.25. So 3.717 as opposed to 4.025. So revenues under pressure, but profits moving in the right direction. Cost base looks under control uh, and regulatory capital looks pretty solid. The outlook, though, is still murky. And the statement just crossing this morning from Credit Suisse that it's still too early in the quarter to draw definitive conclusions about our performance for the rest of 2019. And I think that's somewhat telling. You know, what type of year will this be? One of two halves, one where there is weakness that persists across the entire year. 
I mean, if you look at the stock price, there has been a recovery trade in Credit Suisse since the December lows that took place. So there is, to an extent, quite a bit for the group to try and justify at this point. Just getting to the CET1 ratio, too, when this is one that uh, sits in the realm of being very close to its peers, 12.6% at the end of Q1. Don't forget, most of the European banks are around that 12.5% mark. So it is uh, right bang in the, in the middle of that uh, uh, fairly decent range for European banks. Uh, perfect. Well, I've got Jumana waiting. Jumana, I'm just looking at various metrics as well. Still trades at a slight discount to its peer uh, in Zurich, uh, UBS as well. Does it deserve to trade at a slight discount still or actually should it be coming up the rails? Good morning to you. Good morning to you guys. Uh, yeah, it's a question I should ask Mr. Tiam, shouldn't I, when I speak to him shortly. Um, but, but look, uh, you know, as you were just parsing through the numbers, I think you hit the nail on the head, Steve. Uh, this is a bank, as you very well know, uh, has undergone its restructuring process the last couple of years. Uh, they started it in 2015, ended it almost in 2018. Many analysts say that this has gone from a bank, this is now a bank that is under, uh, finished the process of restructuring to a bank that is restructured. The big question is on profitability going forward. So it's less about cost mitigation, cost uh, containment, uh, moving the businesses, cleaning up the balance sheets, and more about how they are going to increase the top line. And I think you hit the nail on the head here because, yes, looking at the numbers, they've beat on top line, they beat on bottom line. They indeed came out with a higher CET1 ratio than the street was expecting. But if you want to get into the nitty gritty here, uh, there are a few things that certainly do stand out to me. Looking at their Asia-Pacific region, for example, uh, revenue was down significantly there uh, just in terms of their pre-tax income. That was down about uh, 18%, at uh, 17% a year on year. So APAC is obviously a region that they've been heavily investing in, being on the wealth management side, uh, but also in part of the markets uh, activity as well. Investment banking and capital markets also down significantly. Advisory revenues down 23% a year on year. Total global advisory and underwriting revenues down 30% a year on year. Global markets, another area that people have been focused on, again, also down about 9%, 10% uh, in revenues there as well. So getting into the nitty gritty of the individual businesses, I think analysts would uh, be looking at those areas in particular, Asia Pacific, global underwriting and, and markets, and really ask the question of uh, how big those businesses need to be to support the other businesses, the safer businesses, the wealth management businesses uh, that incur those uh, regular uh, transaction fees and income fees, which is obviously supportive of the business. Uh, and I think, you know, that is going to be the big question for Mr. TM going forward. So, uh, as I started off talking about, you know, this is a bank that has undergone this massive restructuring. I think now looking at it, it is certainly a bank that has got its cost structure under control, but facing the many macro headwinds that the industry is facing, what can they do and what will they do to bring up the revenues and how much of that is a function of the climate itself and how much is it a function of uh, the strategy that is being uh, undertaken by Credit Suisse and Mr. Tiam, certainly questions that I'm going to put to him when I sit down with him shortly. Jamana, I just want to ask you about uh, the returns. I mean, it feels to me as though it's very uneven right across the European banking space when you've got return on tangible equity at this bank in the first quarter at 8%. Others across uh, the European yep. space have much higher yep. levels than that, some even closer to the 15% mark. Is there any way that Credit Suisse can close that gap? You know, that's also an excellent question, especially, Karen, because their own target 
is 10% for 2019. They're only just hitting 8%. And so that's another point that I think people will want to have uh, questions on. It all comes down to the same matter. How are they going to increase revenues uh, in this environment? Because they've done as much as they could possibly do on the cost front. They have to find a way to increase the top line. And as you mentioned, there's huge disparity across the spectrum. And I think a big part of it is the fact that um, they are relying on the lower types of return on equity business, the safer business, as I just mentioned, the income generating business, as opposed to uh, the riskier plays of the past, investment banking, underwriting, advisory fees, etc., which would have in the past generated those uh, juicier return on equity targets. So definitely, definitely a valid question there. And there is a huge gap between uh, where a lot of these uh, banks are trading versus uh, their targets. And obviously, you know, European banks as a whole are at trading at a significant discount to US banks, not just on valuation, but also in terms of uh, where they're achieving these return on equity targets. Fabulous. Look, great summary there, Jimon. I'm really, really looking forward to your interview with uh, Mr. Tiam as well. But uh, I mean, look, there's some really good news on cost income ratios across the board. Uh, until I get to the IBCM level as well of cost income ratio, which looks horrendous to me, despite rising equity markets as well, coming in at 123.9 as opposed to the fourth quarter of 2018 of 76.8 as well. I know he thinks it's churlish of me to look at the, the, these uh, cost income ratios in such minutiae as I have done previously as well. But I think that's a horrendous figure given the fact that revenues are moving in one direction, operating expenses are increasing uh, and re- uh, the cost income ratio has literally gone through the roof there at IBCM despite fairly stable first quarter markets as well. I don't know if you want a quick word on that before we move on. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the group as a whole, uh, at, at the end of the day, a couple of years ago, the cost income ratio was about 95%. Now we've moved towards that 75%. Clearly, some businesses, as you rightly point out, the investment banking business, uh, p- perhaps for this particular quarter, uh, they are seeing operating expenses go up. Not good at all for the cost income ratio. Generally, as a group, though, what they have reported for uh, this quarter in particular is operating expenses are down 6%. So still in line with the the overall target. Remember, they've saved over 4 billion Swiss francs over the last couple of years. But cost income ratio is indeed key because we have dropped 20 percentage points for the group as a whole in the last couple of years. Investors can't con- expect that to continue. See, we seem to be finding a base here when it comes to how much they can trim off in terms of the fat in the business uh, when it comes to costs. It's all about generating the income now, the top line. Absolutely. And I don't want to be charged. We're putting the broader context Absolutely great. All those movement they're seeing on all of those things. But the IBCM, when we look at that section four on page four of their report, and then you move to the cost income ratio, I see virtually every metrics move in the wrong direction. But anyway, maybe I know you'll go with uh, uh, toe-to-toe with uh, Mr. Tiam on that as well. So I'm really looking forward to that interview uh, with Tijam Tiam. It does set the scene, though, for why there is uh, consolidation in the back yeah. channels that may be happening uh, with some of the major banks. Absolutely, and yeah. The latest is UBS and Deutsche Bank are reportedly in talks to merge their asset management businesses. According to the Financial Times, both firms have been in talks for a couple of months. Deutsche's asset arm, DWS, listed just over a year ago, but is still 79% owned by the German lender. The deal would create a European giant in the investment industry with 1.4 trillion euros in assets under management. Uh, Deutsche Bank is reportedly considering plans to create a bad bank should merger talks with commerce fail. 
According to the Wall Street Journal, Deutsche would create a unit for unwanted assets as part of a clean-up of its operations if a deal fails. Extraordinary story. We'll, we'll come to this with Bob Parker, our guest host, a little bit later on as well, because there's so much you and I want to talk about there as well. Novartis. Now, very interesting. Most companies, uh, as you well know, have had a decent old rally uh, from Christmas Eve, pretty much. The global markets have rallied. We mentioned that in our top headline as well, with the S&P hitting new record levels as well. But one company actually year-to-date, I'm just looking at here, not the only company, uh, Novartis, which was having a, a very decent rally uh, over the last 12 months, up until, and I'll give you the exact date up until earlier this month when it started falling aggressively. So what does that mean? Well, uh, I can tell you the numbers today are out and we've had first quarter sales at 11.1 billion US dollars. The core net income has actually just a respectable figure. Core net income 2.811 billion as opposed to 2.755 billion uh, net income, first quarter core, profit guidance upgraded, so says Novartis today. Uh, and Richard Sainer has been appointed the CEO of the Sandoz unit. Let's just have a look as uh, what else they're saying as well. Uh, yeah, again, the operating income just a tad over expectations at the first decimal. Guidance calls for innovative medicines to grow mid-single digits. Sandoz broadly in line with the previous year. So question marks perhaps remaining still about the broader Sandoz portfolio. But 2019 guidance for core operating income growth revised upward. Uh, to grow high single digit sales guidance confirmed to grow mid single digit so trying to reassure the market after the recent wobble i could uh, just jump into here and talk about reassurance too because sap has come up with what looks to be a fairly messy set of numbers to me from the outset uh, in, in terms of what is posted for the first quarter an operating loss uh, the business software giant uh, from germany has now set fresh ambitious midterm targets all this as it now tries to boost profits on the back of reporting a first quarter operating loss that uh, has resulted from restructuring charges. So uh, in, in terms of diving into that loss, operating loss, 136 million euros are reflecting 886 million euros in restructuring charges. It uh, sees Q1 adjusted, this non inferous operating profit up 13%, non inferous operating margin uh, 24%, that is up 05 uh, points. The cloud gross margin has also risen and it's at 66.2. I think this has been one of the challenges where you're seeing parts of the business grow and others still show uh, a need for reform. So the cloud revenue is up 41% at a constant currencies, 1.58 billion euros. This is ahead of estimates. I think that will be key. The license uh, licenses and support revenue, that's up 3% in a constant rate. In terms of the EPS, that has crossed at 0.90 euros versus a Reuters poll that saw the number being lower than that. So that number is better than anticipated. It's raised its guidance for 2019 non-inference operating profit at constant currencies, 7.85 to 8.05 billion euros. And uh, it's raised its guidance for 2020 non-inference operating profits. So promises down the track, I think, uh, has been the message. It will also evaluate its multi-year margin targets. Uh, a quick line, too, uh, as it uh, is targeting an annual dividend payment of uh, pay at a 40% or more of the prior year's after-tax profit by 2023. It will evaluate its multi-year buyback program, too. So it's going right through every target that the investor community will look like. Acquisitions, you might ask me too. It says it's also uh, looking at uh, tuck-in acquisitions. I haven't heard that one. Tuck-in acquisitions while maintaining strong balance sheet. Don't we usually call them bolt-on? Uh, yeah, tuck-in. Just tuck-in. 
What is it? Just a little one on the side? I don't know. What are you stuck in? Bed like a sheet. You sit in bed. The kids away. Yeah. Let's leave that one for the moment. Yeah. Tucking acquisitions. Paint. Actually, Axon Bell shares on the back of buybacks, on the back of the reorganisation of the company, on the back, I guess, of long-term bid interest. Still, potentially, of course, is a company that faced down activists to try and combine its company elsewhere. The biggest shareholder I still notice is Norgebank Capital Research Global Investors and Elliott. Elliott's still at number three with 4.8%. That's the key there for Axe and Abel shares, which have had a decent rally off their lows. In fact, a very good rally this year, 20.6% uh, higher. Um, they have got a raw material inflation issue as well, and that's something we're going to speak with uh, Thierry Van Lacker at about uh, 8.15 CET. That's the first on CNBC interview. They are looking at cost savings, ongoing price initiatives. Um, looks like the price mix up 6%, so they are pushing on some of those extra raw material costs uh, on to their customers as well. Karen was um, talking earlier, in fact, she might have talked about APAC revenues for Credit Suisse. Well, APAC revenue is absolutely key for uh, a decorative coats and paint specialist now. Of course, they don't have the speciality chemicals business anymore. That was spun off and hence you got the return, which is now a total of 6.5 billion to shareholders as well. But the revenue, well, it's moving in the right direction. 1% higher, but it seems quite glacial. So we need to know uh, why we're not seeing um, a bigger move to the upside. But um, here's, here's a nice side of it. New season sparking life into McLaren Formula One. Of course, we know uh, Formula One, you know, you've met Mr. Brown many times yes. as well. They've had some tough times as of late as well. I haven't seen the results as of late. Are they doing better this year? Oh, I haven't seen them either. Uh, but anyway, they're working with the paint team over at McLaren on the, on the, on the colour work on the new cars. So you sort of hope that there's a, a few uh, crashes on the circuit so you have to keep redoing the paint. Oh, I don't know if they do. <laughs> do anyone want to, I've just had a paint job on one of my cars. Not cheap. Not cheap, especially if it's more than one panel. Well, the share price is going in the right direction for AXO anyway. Uh, it has been climbing up 20% this year so far. Plenty coming up, a busy old earnings season today, including uh, plenty of other conversations too around the macro. Standard Lifelines Chair Martin Gilbert hails Saudi's relationship with the White House and says the oil price creates opportunities for asset managers. More on that when we return. And also, if you can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to cmc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. Fresh records on the close on Wall Street for the S&P and NASDAQ after three straight days of wins, enough to, to bolster the levels that you're now seeing on the S&P and the NASDAQ. 2.933 as we closed up shop on the S&P and 8.120 on the NASDAQ. whole bunch of earnings hitting the tape, which also contributed to some of the gains. And don't forget, investors had been a little bit nervous coming up to reporting season with a lot of the guidance moved lower. However, that said, they're also willing to bid up the S&P on hopes that some of those levels of guidance had been beaten up just too much. And as we saw in session yesterday, uh, sectors leading healthcare was right out there in front. Consumer discretionary also um, posted our performance. And when you take a look at one key component, technology, record close in session. Now, some of this down to the fortunes of Twitter and the company had plenty to tweet about on the back of its first quarter earnings, a real beat on its earnings and on sales targets in the first three months of the year. Also uh, on the stock action, 15% uh, gain, enough to push the company out of bear market territory. One of the big factors to look at too, and this is a key metric for many of these new companies, monthly active users, a very strong print here, well and truly beyond expectations, where the market thought you'd see a drop of about 4 million, uh, well you would see about 4 million number, 9 million new, new users added during the period. So 
very strong uh, increase in the number of users added over the course of the month. Let me take you elsewhere to what all this means for the European markets this morning. We've had some choppy action in the Asian markets, so I think that's having a bit of an influence as well. We are chasing red arrows across the board. China's still showing some weakness in session today on fears that there may not be as much stimulus added. And you can see European markets on uh, an earnings season day. We've had a whole bunch of corporate reports cross. We are looking to just move a little bit south at the start of the session. Steve. Okay, let's uh, move on. Saudi Arabia's Tadawul has risen almost 20% so far this year, tracking a lot of the major indices around the globe. Ahead of its inclusion in the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, Riyadh is looking to woo more international investors as part of its Vision 2030 strategy. The kingdom is hosting a two-day financial sector conference as it examines how the financial sector can contribute to the policy. Now, Hadley, I know you've been speaking to some great people already. I've, I've got many more to come still as well. But I have a question for you to start off with. I know this isn't as big as the FII, the, the trophy conference that was so controversial late last year, but it seems a lot of big names have come back to Riyadh for this, where they felt they couldn't turn up at the FII in October. So has the Ferrari uh, over uh, Mr. Khashoggi uh, and the concerns about the regime, has that all dissipated and are people now confident enough to go back into Saudi in a meaningful way? It's an excellent question, Stephen. It seems as if, frankly, they are. I mean, we're expecting some 3,200 people to attend this first ever financial sector conference. This is a conference, I might add, that's being led by the finance ministry, Mohammed Al-Jadan, the finance minister of Saudi Arabia, is really leading the way on this. This is the first ever conference that they've had of this kind. Also, I might add, it's right here in the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton, which doesn't necessarily have the best connotations when we're talking about investment. But a lot of folks here on the sidelines of this conference telling me that they don't want to be callous about it, but at the same time, business, certainly in Saudi Arabia, is back. One of those people, Martin Gilbert of Aberdeen Asset Management. Let's listen in to what he had to say about the impact of these higher oil prices on confidence in the region. The uh, higher oil price has definitely helped confidence here. Obviously, reserves grow when, uh, when, the, when the price of oil is at these sort of uh, levels, which mean opportunities for, uh, for asset managers. Uh, Aramco is clearly a very powerful uh, uh, company in, in world terms, uh, I think bigger than the next three oil companies in the world. So it's certainly a very powerful, very cash generative. But I do think the country is doing much better with the uh, higher oil price and all the work they've done on, uh, on uh, trying to balance the budget more. Now, I got to say, guys, I did push him on this because obviously Aberdeen was very involved in that Aramco bond sale. But I said, hey, listen, confidence in a company isn't necessarily confidence in a country. I asked him what he feels about the strategy going forward in terms of the Crown Prince's efforts, in terms of Vision 2030, or whether or not that's been derailed. And he said, listen, I don't want to be callous about it. But at the same time, when it comes to security, we've seen events in Sri Lanka, and it kind of plays into the broader narrative that when it comes to geopolitical risk, it's something we can't inevitably, we really just can't get away from it. Now, the security situation in Saudi Arabia, we want to to mention just a few days ago, of course, there was a terror attack on the outside of Riyadh, outskirts of Riyadh, and four people were killed. They were considered militants. They were apparently heavily armed. We've also seen in the in the wake of that attack, in the wake of that attack, you saw 13 people at least arrested who were apparently in some kind of bomb making factory. And now, in the last 24 hours, we've seen Saudi Arabia executing uh, over 30 people in connection with this event. So when we talk about regional security, we're not just talking about what's happening potentially in the Strait of Hormuz. We're not just talking about what's happening coming out of Washington in terms of the heightened rhetoric with Iran. We're also literally talking about what's happening right here inside the kingdom. And when I asked uh, Martin about that, he listened and was saying, listen, this is geopolitical risk.
risk. It's something that we all have to take on board and it's not keeping us from investing. Guys. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that, Hadley. And we'll have plenty more from uh, Hadley and the team out of Riyadh. And just, uh, just for our viewers, apologies for the, uh, the picture quality there as well. Sometimes the technology uh, challenged in these huge hotels. I don't know if you've been to one of these, these, these Ritz Carlton, of course you have, you're Karen, but you, these huge Ritz they're so big and we have to do so much cabling, get so much uh, technology to get to the main forums. It's a nightmare, as you know, well know. Yes, uh, let's just come back to earnings. Uh, a couple of viewers also pointing out it's been very busy on the earnings front for us today. We have another company crossing, Dassault Systems, uh, the French company. It's Q1 IFRS. Total revenue has uh, beaten expectations, 959 million euros. The operating margins also improved on a year ago, 22.5 versus 21.8% uh, 12 months ago. The Q1 cash flow from operations up 20%. The company now says it uh, sees a stronger con contribution coming from recurring revenue, software revenue. It uh, has also uh, started to guide to for the outlook and uh, most of it looks to be fairly confident about what it's expecting. The first quarter, uh, it sees, uh, uh, well, I should probably just say, Q2 EPS growth between 7 and 12%, uh, though I would say that that's a fairly wide range when you talk about what, a 5% differential in, in the guidance. You know, the problem there. with Dassault System is, is that there isn't a problem with Dassault System in many right. ways. And, and, and I, I say that meaningfully because it's a great company run by, I think, one of the nicest people in mm -hmm. the C-suite and one of the most competent men in the C-suite as well. And this is Bernard Chalet as well. And we've yes. been privileged to speak to him for the last 20 years as well. And he does a great job. And this is a great company. And therein lies the problem for European investors. We don't have a, a plethora, a cacophony of good technology companies mm. to invest in if you're looking for a pure European tech play. So the problem comes in the fact that when you do buy a company like Stasis Systems, you're buying it at extreme multiples as well. So it's a great company. It's had good numbers, I think broadly reassuring there you were saying as well, but it trades at 38 times forward. Uh, and therein lies the, the, the conundrum for European tech investors. Great company, solid revenue stream, well run as well, but you pay a premium. Yeah, and where's the growth? I mean, the, the outlook statement, a growth outlook for software revenue similar to 2018. Uh, all this is it's just inked uh, a fairly major deal from the looks of it with BHP, the leading mining company in the world. The uh, two companies engaging a long-term strategic partnership to leverage the application of digital technologies to mining. So that deal just uh, released as uh, it's uh, posted numbers today. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.